Chapter 3 of The Riddle of the Sands This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Chapter 3 Davies. I dozed but fitfully, with a fretful sense of sore elbows and neck and many a draughty hiatus among the blankets. It was broad daylight before I had reached the stage of torpor in which such slumber merges. That was finally broken by the descent through the skylight of a torrent of water. I started up, bumped my head hard against the decks, and blinked leaden-eyed upwards. Sorry, I'm scrubbing decks. Come up and bathe. Slept well? I heard a voice saying from aloft. Fairly well, I growled, stepping out into a pool of water on the oilcloth. Thence I stumbled up the ladder, dived overboard, and buried bad dreams, stiffness, frowsiness, and tormented nerves on the loveliest fjord of the lovely Baltic. A short and furious swim, and I was back again, and searching for a means of ascent, up the smooth black side, which, low as it was, was slippery and unsympathetic. Davies, in a loose canvas shirt, with the sleeves tucked up and flannels rolled up to the knee, hung over me with a rope's end and chatted unconcernedly about the easiness of the job when you know how, adjuring me to mind the paint and talking about an accommodation ladder he had once had but had thrown overboard because it was so horribly in the way. When I arrived, my knees and elbows were picked out in black paint, to his consternation. Nevertheless, as I plied the towel, I knew that I had left in those limpid depths yet another crust of discontent and self-conceit. As I dressed into flannels and blazer, I looked round the deck, and with an unskilled and doubtful eye, took in all that the darkness had hitherto hidden. She seemed very small. In point of fact, she was seven tons, something over thirty feet in length and nine in beam, a size very suitable to weekends in the Solent, for such as liked that sort of thing. But that she should have come from Dover to the Baltic suggested a world of physical endeavour of which I had never dreamed. I passed to the aesthetic side. Smartness and beauty were essential to yachts in my mind, but with the best resolves to be pleased, I found little encouragement here. The hull seemed too low, and the mainmast too high. The cabin roof looked clumsy, and the skylights saddened the eye with dull iron and plebeian graining. What brass there was, on the tillerhead and elsewhere, was tarnished with sickly green. The decks had none of that creamy purity which cows expects, but were rough and grey and showed tarry exhalations round the seams and rusty stains near the bows. The ropes and rigging were in mourning when contrasted with the delicate buff manila so satisfying to the artistic eye as seen against the blue of a June sky at South Sea. Nor was the whole effect bettered by many signs of recent refitting. An impression of paint, varnish and carpentry was in the air. A gaudy new burgee fluttered aloft. There seemed to be a new rope or two, especially round the diminutive mizzen-mast, which itself looked altogether new. 
but all this only emphasized the general plainness, reminding one of a respectable woman of the working classes trying to dress above her station, and soon likely to give it up. That the ensemble was businesslike and solid, even my untrained eye could see. Many of the deck fittings seemed disproportionately substantial. The anchor chain looked contemptuous of its charge. The binnacle with its compass was of a size and prominence almost comically impressive, and was, moreover, the only piece of brass which was burnished and showed traces of reverend care. Two huge coils of stout and dingy warp lay just abaft the mainmast and summed up the weather-beaten aspect of the little ship. I should add here that in the distant past she had been a lifeboat and had been clumsily converted into a yacht by the addition of a counter, deck and the necessary spars. She was built, as all lifeboats are, diagonally of two skins of teak and thus had immense strength, though in the matter of looks, all a hybrid's failings. Hunger and tea's made from below brought me down to the cabin, where I found breakfast laid out on the table over the centreboard case, with Davies earnestly presiding, rather flushed as to the face, and sooty as to the fingers. There was a slight shortage of plate and crockery, but I praised the bacon and could do so truthfully, for its crisp and steaming shavings would put to shame the efforts of my London cook. Indeed, I should have enjoyed the meal heartily, were it not for the lowness of the sofa and table, causing a curvature of the body which made swallowing a more lengthy process than usual, and induced a periodical yearning to get up and stretch, a relief which spelt disaster to the skull. I noticed, too, that Davies spoke with a zest, sinister to me, of the delights of white bread and fresh milk, which he seemed to consider unusual luxuries, though suitable to an inaugural banquet in honour of a fastidious stranger. One can't be always going on shore, he said, when I showed a discreet interest in these things. I lived for ten days on a big rye loaf over in the Frisian Islands. And it died hard, I suppose? Very hard, but, gravely, quite good. After that I taught myself to make rolls. Had no baking powder at first, so used Eno's fruit salt. But they wouldn't rise much with that. As for milk, condensed is. I hope you don't mind it. I changed the subject and asked about his plans. Let's get under way at once, he said, and sail down the fjord. I tried for something more specific, but he was gone and his voice drowned in the forecastle by the clatter and swish of washing up. Thenceforward, events moved with bewildering rapidity. Humbly desirous of being useful, I joined him on deck, only to find that he scarcely noticed me, save as a new and unexpected obstacle in his round of activity. He was everywhere at once, heaving in chain, hooking on halyards, hauling ropes, while my part became that of the clown who does things after they are already done, for my knowledge of a yacht was of that floating and inaccurate kind which is useless in practice. Soon the anchor was up, a great rusty monster it was. The sails set, and Davies was darting swiftly to and fro between the tiller and jib-sheets, while the Dulcibella bowed a lingering farewell to the shore, 
and headed for the open fjord. Erratic puffs from the high land behind made her progress timorous at first, but soon the fairway was reached, and a true breeze from Flensburg and the west took her in its friendly grip. Steadily she rustled down the calm blue highway, whose soft beauty was the introduction to a passage in my life, short but pregnant with moulding force, through stress and strain for me and others. Davies was gradually resuming his natural self, with abstracted intervals, in which he lashed the helm to finger a distant rope, with such speed that the movements seemed simultaneous. Once he vanished, only to reappear in an instant with a chart, which he studied while steering, with a success that its reluctant folds seemed to render impossible. Waiting respectfully for his revival, I had full time to look about. The fjord here was about a mile broad. From the shore we had left, the hills rose steeply, but with no rugged grandeur. The outlines were soft. There were green spaces and rich woods on the lower slopes. A little white town was opening up in one place, and scattered farms dotted the prospect. The other shore, which I could just see, framed between the gunwale and the mainsail, as I sat leaning against the hatchway, and sadly missing a deck-chair, was lower and lonelier, though prosperous and pleasing to the eye. Spacious pastures led up by slow degrees to ordered clusters of wood, which hinted at the presence of some great manor-house. Behind us, Flensburg was settling into haze. Ahead, the scene was shut in by the contours of hills, some clear, some dreamy and distant. Lastly, a single glimpse of water shining between the folds of hill far away hinted at spaces of distant sea, of which this was but a secluded inlet. Everywhere was that peculiar charm engendered by the association of quiet pastoral country and a homely human atmosphere with a branch of the great ocean that bathes all the shores of our globe. There was another charm in the scene, due to the way in which I was viewing it, not as a pampered passenger on a fine steam yacht, or even on a powerful modern schooner, as the yacht agents advertise, but from the deck of a scrubby little craft of doubtful build and distressing plainness, which yet had smelt her persistent way to this distant fjord, through a new not what of difficulty and danger, with no apparent motive in her single occupant, who talked as vaguely and unconcernedly about his adventurous cruise as though it were all a protracted afternoon on Southampton water. I glanced around at Davies. He had dropped the chart and was sitting, or rather half-lying, on the deck with one bronzed arm over the tiller, gazing fixedly ahead, with just an occasional glance around and aloft. He still seemed absorbed in himself, and for a moment or two I studied his face with an attention I had never since I had known him, given it. I had always thought it commonplace, as I had thought him commonplace, so far as I had thought at all about either. It had always rather irritated me by an excess of candour and boyishness. These qualities it had kept, but the scales were falling from my eyes, and I saw others. I saw strength to obstinacy, and courage to recklessness, in the firm lines of the chin, an older and deeper look in the eyes. Those odd transitions from bright mobility to detached earnestness, which had partly amused and chiefly annoyed me hitherto, 
seemed now to be lost in a sensitive reserve, not cold or egotistic, but strangely winning from its paradoxical frankness. Sincerity was stamped on every lineament. A deep misgiving stirred me that, clever as I thought myself, nicely perceptive of the right and congenial men to know, I had made some big mistakes. How many, I wondered. A relief, scarcely less deep, because it was unconfessed, stole in on me, with a suspicion that, little as I deserved it, the patient fates were offering me a golden chance of repairing at least one. And yet, I mused, the patient fates have crooked methods, besides a certain mischievous humour, for it was Davies who had asked me out, though now he scarcely seemed to need me, almost tricked me into coming out, for he might have known I was not suited to such a life. Yet trickery and Davies sounded an odd conjuncture. Probably it was the growing discomfort of my attitude which produced this backsliding. My night's rest and the ascent from the bath had in fact done little to prepare me for contact with sharp edges and hard surfaces. But Davies had suddenly come to himself and with an I say, are you comfortable? Have something to sit on? Jerked the helm a little to windward. Felt it like a pulse for a moment with a rapid look to windward and dived below, whence he returned with a couple of cushions which he threw to me. I felt perversely resentful of these luxuries and asked, "'Can't I be of any use?' "'Oh, don't bother,' he answered. "'I expect you're tired. "'Aren't we having a splendid sail? "'This must be Ekin on the port bow,' peering under the sail, "'where the trees run in. "'I say, do you mind looking at the chart?' He tossed it over to me. I spread it out painfully, for it curled up like a watch-spring at the least slackening of pressure. I was not familiar with charts, and this sudden trust reposed in me, after a good deal of neglect, made me nervous. "'You see Flensburg, don't you?' he said. "'That's where we are,' dabbing with a long reach at an indefinite space on the crowded sheet. "'Now, which side of that boy off the point do we pass?' I had scarcely taken in which was land and which was water, much less the significance of the boy, when he resumed, Never mind, I'm pretty sure it's all deep water about here. I expect that marks the fairway for steamers. In a minute or two we were passing the boy in question. On the wrong side I am pretty certain, for weeds and sand came suddenly into view below us with uncomfortable distinctness. But all Davis said was, there's never any sea here, and the plate's not down. A dark utterance, which I pondered doubtfully. The best of these Schleswig waters, he went on, is that a boat of this size can go almost anywhere. There's no navigation required. Why? At this moment a faint scraping was felt, rather than heard, beneath us. Aren't we aground? I asked, with great calmness. "'Oh, she'll blow over,' he replied, wincing a little. "'She blew over, but the episode caused a little naive vexation in Davies. "'I related as a good instance of one of his minor peculiarities. "'He was utterly without that didactic pedantry "'which yachting has a fatal tendency to engender in men who profess it. "'He had tossed me the chart without a thought that I was an ignoramus, "'to whom it would be Greek.' 
and who would provide him with an admirable subject to drill and lecture, just as his neglect of me throughout the morning had been merely habitual and unconscious independence. In the second place, master of his métier, as I knew him afterwards to be, resourceful, skilful, and alert, he was liable to lapse into a certain amateurish vagueness, half irritating and half amusing. I think truly that both these peculiarities came from the same source, a hatred of any sort of affectation. To the same source I traced the fact that he and his yacht observed none of the superficial etiquette of yachts and yachtsmen, that she never, for instance, flew a national ensign, and he never wore a yachting suit. We rounded a low green point, which I had scarcely noticed before. We must jibe, said Davis. Just take the helm, will you? And without waiting for my cooperation, he began hauling in the main sheet with great vigour. I had rude notions of steering, but jibing is a delicate operation. No yachtsman will be surprised to hear that the boom saw its opportunity and swung over with a mighty crash, with the main sheet entangled round me and the tiller. Dribed all standing, was his sorrowful comment. You're not used to her yet. She's very quick on the helm. Where am I to steer for? I asked wildly. Oh, don't trouble, I'll take her now, he replied. I felt it was time to make my position clear. I'm an utter duffer at sailing, I began. You'll have a lot to teach me, or one of these days I shall be wrecking you. You see, there's always been a crew. Crew, with sovereign contempt. Why, the whole fun of the thing is to do everything oneself. Well, I felt in the way the whole morning. I'm awfully sorry. His dismay and repentance were comical. Why, it's just the other way. You may be all the use in the world. He became absent. We were following the inward trend of a small bay towards a cleft in the low shore. That's Ecken Sound, said Davies. Let's look into it. And a minute or two later we were drifting through a dainty little strait with a peep of open water at the end of it. Cottages bordered either side, some overhanging the very water, some connecting with it by a rickety wooden staircase or a miniature landing stage. Creepers and roses rioted over the walls and tiny porches. For a space on one side, a rude quay with small smacks floating off it spoke of some minute commercial interests. A very small tea garden with neglected-looking bowers and leaf-strewn tables hinted at some equally minute tripping interest. A pervading hue of mingled bronze and rose came partly from the water-mellowed woodwork of the cottages and stages, and partly from the creepers and the trees behind, where autumn's subtle fingers were already at work. Down this exquisite sea-lane we glided till it ended in a broad mere, where our sails, which had been shivering and complaining, filled into contented silence. "'Ready about,' said Davies callously. "'We must get out of this again.' And round we swung. "'Why not anchor and stop here?' I protested, for a view of tantalising loveliness was unfolding itself. "'Oh, we've seen all there is to be seen, and we must take this breeze while we've got it.' 
It was always torture to Davies to feel a good breeze running to waste while he was inactive at anchor or on shore. The shore, to him, was an inferior element, merely serving as a useful annex to the water, a source of necessary supplies. Let's have lunch, he pursued, as we resumed our way down the fjord. A vision of iced drinks, tempting salads, white napery, and an attentive steward mocked me with past recollections. You'll find a tongue, said the voice of doom, in the starboard sofa locker, beer under the floor in the bilge. I'll see her round that boy, if you wouldn't mind beginning. I obeyed with a bad grace, but the close air and cramped posture must have benumbed my faculties, for I opened the port-side locker, reached down, and grasped a sticky body which turned out to be a pot of varnish. Recoiling wretchedly, I tried the opposite one, combating the embarrassing heel of the boat and the obstructive edges of the centreboard case. A medley of damp tins of varied sizes showed in the gloom, exuding a mouldy odour. Faded legends on dissolving paper, like the remnants of old posters on a disused hoarding, spoke of soups, curries, beefs, potted meats and other hidden delicacies. I picked out a tongue, re-imprisoned the odour, and explored for beer. It was true, I supposed, that bilge didn't hurt it, as I tugged at the plank on my hands and knees, but I should have myself preferred a more accessible and less humid wine cellar than the cavities among slimy ballast from which I dug the bottles. I regarded my hard-won and ill-favoured pledges of a meal with giddiness and discouragement. "'How are you getting on?' shouted Davies. "'The tin opener's hanging up on the bulkhead.' The plates and knives are in the cupboard. I doggedly pursued my functions. The plates and knives met me halfway, for being on the weather side, and thus having a downward slant, its contents, when I slipped the hatch, slid affectionately into my bosom, and overflowed with a clatter and jingle onto the floor. That often happens, I heard from above. Never mind, there are no breakables. I'm coming down to help and down he came, leaving the Dulcibella to her own devices. "'I think I'll go on deck,' I said. "'Why in the world couldn't you lunch comfortably at Ecken "'and save this infernal pandemonium of a picnic? "'Where's the yacht going to, meanwhile? "'And how are we to lunch on that slanting table? "'I'm covered with varnish and mud and ankle-deep in crockery. "'There goes the beer!' "'You shouldn't have stood it on the table with this list on,' said Davies, with intense composure. "'But it won't do any harm. It'll drain into the bilge. "'Ashes to ashes, dust to dust,' I thought. "'You go on deck now, and I'll finish getting ready.' "'I regretted my explosion, though wrung from me under great provocation. "'Keep her straight on as she's going,' said Davies, as I clambered up out of the chaos.' brushing the dust off my trousers and varnishing the ladder with my hands. I unlashed the helm and kept her as she was going. We had rounded a sharp bend in the fjord and were sailing up a broad and straight reach which every moment disclosed new beauties, sights fair enough to be balm to the angriest spirit. A red-roofed hamlet was on our left, on the right an ivied ruin, close to the water, 
where some contemplative cattle stood knee-deep. The view ahead was a white strand which fringed both shores, and to it fell wooded slopes, interrupted here and there by low sandstone cliffs of warm red colouring, and now and again by a dingle with cracks of greenswood. I forgot petty squalors and enjoyed things. The coy tremble of the tiller and the backwash of air from the dingy mainsail, and with a somewhat chastened rapture, the lunch which Davies brought up to me and solicitously watched me eat. Later, as the wind sank to lazy airs, he became busy with a larger topsail and jib, but I was content to doze away the afternoon, drenching brain and body in the sweet and novel foreign atmosphere, and dreamily watching the fringe of glen cliff and cool white sand as they passed ever more slowly by. End of chapter 3 Read by Gesine in May 2007